On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Kate, and Kate was in a controlling relationship with a destabilizing abusive narcissist. It's a story of people-pleasing, trauma bonds, boundaries, minimization, rage, intimidation, and blame. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Kate. How are you? I'm pretty good. Well, thank you, Kate, for being here. And if you want to be a guest like Kate is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions. And either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And today there is a content warning for this episode as we do discuss uh, childhood sexual abuse, childhood sexual assault. As well in the episode, we also do discuss uh, animal abuse. And for the animal abuse part, you will have this warning that happens right before it. So that is the content warning for this episode. And today you're going to hear Kate's story, and I've known Kate for a very long time. Kate is a a part of our support group, and I've seen Kate from the beginning of when when she came into the group uh, and have watched her throughout her time of of figuring everything out and, you know, different cycles of abuse that are that are going on, the restarts of cycles. So today you're going to hear her story and it's about trauma bonds and, you know, uh, how she was involved with this person who was a really big time thief and how that is part of an isolation process. And, you know, you're going to hear about not respecting boundaries. There's rage, intimidation. You know, you're going to hear about blocked doorways blame shifting, putting blame on you, guilt, triangulation. And I just really want to thank Kate for for being here. It was a long process to to get here, not just from being part of our support group, but, you know, just the process of doing this story, figuring how to tell your story. So just a really big thank you, Kate, for for being here. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Kate, the floor is now yours. Okay. I grew up an only child. My parents were together. My mom was very charming and um, cultured and very invested in her profession. So she was not home a lot. And when she was home, um, was very subservient, in a very subservient role with my father. So she wasn't accessible to me in the evening either. So I didn't really have a strong connection with my mother as far as I didn't know her. She didn't really know me. And uh, there was a lot of tension in the house. So, you know, particularly between my father and I when I I got a voice and was a little older. And um, so she would often answer questions for me if someone were to ask me something or explain my feelings or how I'm feeling, tell me how I'm feeling. So there was a lot of um, just denial and and minimizing and just kind of 
erasing of my experiences. How'd that make you feel at a young age? I mean, fortunately, you know, there's that protective instinct or inside that, that, you know, kind of separated me from really knowing, understanding what was happening. So, I mean, this has been sort of revealing itself to me for the last, you know, few decades because it is kind of very subtle. Um, but I definitely learned not to express myself, um, that there really wasn't a point just to kind of keep everything in. And I was like a really scared child. So that was, was quite challenging to keep all those fears under wrap. And, um, you know, as you can imagine that it just would escalate and escalate. So I, I would say that generally overall, it, it scared me and, um, made me feel very alone and unsafe and unsupported. Um, there was a lot of abuse happening in the household by my dad. When I was young, he sexually assaulted me um, until I was about puberty. Like when my body started changing, I was sort of, those changes seemed to disgust him. And so um, he just sort of switched up tactics to control me. And so intimidation and threats huge invasions of my privacy and boundaries i mean i loved to write as a kid and that was like an outlet of mine and um you know i i started to realize that he was reading my journals and so i would get really what i thought was crafty at hiding them um and i would know he he would let me know that he'd read my journal by just leaving it out on my bed and when i came home there it was and i remember you know that feeling in my gut of uh, shame and a lot of shame. Yeah, my privacy was just so, I'm just so used to it being invaded. Um, he would sit on the phone when I was talking to my friends and he'd let me know because he, I could hear him breathing. Um, so that it was just, you know, kind of a, a slow shutting down um, of my creativity, of my self-expression, you know, eventually of my senses. Um, until I was pretty disconnected from my body. And at the same time, you know, I did have some resources. Um, I was quite neglected. So, you know, I was able to go out and, and wander around in the creek and at the railroad tracks and like just sort of all of the nature that was around, you know, like tiger lilies and milkweed. And like, these were the things that, you know, could take me away from what was going on in the house. Um, and so I'm super grateful to have that. And it also, it also shaped me um, along with the abuse. But my dad, yeah, he was, he was, you know, in that abuse spectrum or whatever, he would have been a terrorist. He terrorized me until I left home and then continued <laughs> in different ways, always switching up the tactics. So from here, you become a people pleaser and have some relationships. So just give us a 3D picture of who you were at this time. Yeah, I just kind of went on for the next several decades in different long-term relationships without really any um, purpose of being in them. And yet there was a huge purpose, of course, that was um, uh, survival. Um, so, you know, I would generally pick like men who were safe, um, you know, nonviolent, 
and and I guess enablers um, to my anxiety and my need for control because definitely what developed from my childhood was um, needing to have a lot of control and um, and I was conflicted about that because I also felt immense guilt at um, needing such control no, knowing that I was you know in my effort not to be needy I was actually like so needy and so I just needed a lot of reassurance a lot of reassurance like almost like a child would need a reassurance um I mean I don't even think it was until you know my my late 20s maybe that I could even sleep at night um because the dark scared me so much so you know that's what these relationships would have been would have been about is um I almost look at them as like gatekeepers to keep me safe you know I remember feeling like all my life that I've been really street smart, for example. And then, you know, the realization that I just kept myself away from situations so that I didn't have to, I just didn't have to get involved in anything that would make me uncomfortable. And and having a man, you know, unconsciously, I mean, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but having a man there, it just make, made me less approachable and less um, vulnerable to predator types um, who definitely I've had drawn to me all the time, all, all throughout my life. And, you know, would even remember in my thirties feeling still like I was a child to an adult, you know, when a predator type person would, um, approach me, like I just lost all power. So, you know, I knew that in the face of something real life uh, that I would cave, but I never really experienced it. I never had to experience it because I was you know, safe in these relationships and, and not really, you know, for me personally, I, I didn't know why I was in them. They weren't fulfilling to me. I don't think I probably even loved these, these folks. Um, and, and I created a character of who they were and how it fit for my anxiety, um, which would probably have cut out great pieces of who they were as a whole. Um, so, yeah. My life was like pretty wholesome. <laughs> it was pretty introverted, I would say, um, but definitely like to be around people. Yeah, kind of a quiet life, um, more or less. So you were in a long-term, passionless relationship for a very, very, very long time. This relationship was over a 12-year period, and there was just no passion left in, in this relationship. And also, while this is going on, towards the end of this time, you know, music became, becomes a big thing for you. It was big for you when you were younger, but it becomes big again as you started to go to this music trivia night, and the music there is really good. But this brings you back into this arrested development part of your life when you were younger. It kind of brings this younger you back out and you start drinking a little more and going out more and you start to become more extroverted than you ever have before. So at this point, all of these things are going on and then eventually you meet the person that this story is about. So how did you meet this person? And, and I guess just tell us everything about this meeting and, and where things went from here. So we met at a party one night and um he was with somebody i'd never met him before i live in a small city so it was like we were all kind of excited to have somebody new 
this was like a jam. So this is a bunch of musicians. So somebody knew to play and just some new energy. And like, he certainly brought it. He was like, definitely um, caught the room's attention, caught my attention. And um, we seemed to have a really good quick rapport. And we just started hanging out the whole night. You know, the other thing that was going on that night and would be consistent in the relationship was like him pushing alcohol on me. So, um, you know, I definitely feel like he was testing the waters to see if I could like. Yeah, just to see how far he could push me. And and I he like, I mean, he's not responsible for me drinking as much as I did that night, but, um, you know, really egging me on with the tequila and. Yeah, I ended up getting quite sick and like you know, just puking outside of this place and having everyone see. It was kind of humiliating. Um, not something I was used to doing. Um, but yeah, it was really egging me on um, with the alcohol. And, uh, you know, we had a, a pretty good banter kind of going back and forth. Um, I guess at some point in that night, we had exchanged info. And um, the next morning, like right away, there was um, a message from him. Um, asking me how I was because he was somebody who saw me on the outside throwing up my life out onto the alley and it just started like literally from that moment um, I was still in this 12-year relationship he started texting me a lot um, and right away I guess I kind of felt like there was just something off but you know I hadn't been communicating with like any kind of really you know new people let alone a guy you know in, in a long time and I thought well maybe this is just how people talk I wasn't a big texter but he texted me a lot right off and um all his texts were kind of it's like some kind of labyrinth that I had to negotiate like it, everything was so um ambiguous and hazy even right away in that in that beginning like I, I didn't really understand a lot of what he was even saying um but i just kind of was really open to the experience right at that point in my life i was just wanting to be open and um you know i was not afraid of anything and having had a life that was like really corroded and limited by fear um to not be afraid to do all the things that i wanted to do you know to be really extroverted to be outgoing socially um, um, I'm a photographer, so, you know, I would, like, walk around the alleys at night, late at night, you know, completely unafraid. Um, I'd always been afraid to, to hike too far, and suddenly I was hiking, like, by myself in the bush for miles. Like, it was just such a elevated time that I was just like, yes, everything, not thinking about anything. So, he eventually invited me over to his place. Um, I think his excuse was that he was going to show me how to do something with sound or I don't know. He had a, he had a studio. And uh, so I went over to his place and like even right there, this first meeting I, it was so strange. I remember pulling up to his place and I had been nervous about going there. So I had given my friend his address and details because um, I think I must have you know, right from the bat, just not trusted this guy, even though I had no negative vibe about him, really. But when I remember when I got to his place, he had had the front porch light on and he he saw me pull up, I guess, and, and he shut the light off. And it, 
it was just jarring enough to me that it made me pause and like think I don't know that I want to go in there. It just felt really unwelcoming and just weird. Um, and like literally, I walked in that door and I, I really don't remember, in all honesty, like the next several months because it just started right away with going over to his house, um, you know, five nights a week and just like binge drinking. And so, you know, I don't know when the physical relationship even started because it was just, you know, the tactic of his was to get me wasted enough that um, things were confusing all the time. So very quickly, this person is intoxicating to you and the relationship has a lot of drinking or intoxication as well. And these things are moving really, really quickly between you two. And you're seeing them five days a week. And you're really in this really, really quick. And even though you're acting extroverted, you know, at this time right now, you know, in your history and in your relationship history, you're someone that likes safety in relationships. And eventually the safety goes out the window completely as there are going to be push and pulls that are going to be happening. But also you're going from feeling safe and having good times with this person and then quickly being attacked. So tell us about this. It was over. It was, it was quite early on um, in text and he texted me out of the blue um, after usually these kind of little attacks would follow after like a really good night where it felt really intimate or it felt really safe or we had a good time. And like, I felt like it would just come out of left field because, you know, I'm feeling chill and, and everything's good. And, and suddenly he would just sort of like, you know, like the first time I remember it happening was, was he just suddenly was yelling at me in a text about how he doesn't know anything about me and how I'm evasive and how I don't answer questions and how I don't haven't told him anything about me. And I remember it took me by such surprise also because, you know, he'd never asked me anything about myself. And I mean, to me, it wasn't really a relationship like that. You know, I just assumed, I guess, that he was a player and this was what we were doing for now. I mean, so part of that let me minimize the fact that, yeah, he had shown no interest in who I was as a person. I mean, a great example of that is the first time he came to my house. You know, I, I caught him. I didn't let him know I caught him, but I caught him taking pics of my, my liquor cabinet. And I remember being so embarrassed for him, so embarrassed for myself that I was like sleeping with a guy who was more interested in my liquor cabinet than uh who i was so you know him him yelling at me about not giving him information just seemed kind of ludicrous to me so i mean i probably in that situation went right into people pleasing mode though and um you know uh told him you know ask away or you know i'm so sorry whatever it is to smooth that over because you know it was definitely you know, another red flag. Um, and then, yeah, something he would consistently pull um, probably every other day eventually. But I remember the next time that I knew that I was in trouble. Um, again, we'd had another good night and he texted me in the morning and, you know, was saying something like, 
something that was indicating that he was about to dump me. Um, and again, took me by surprise. Um, you know, and when I asked, when I tried to engage in that conversation, he was just like, I can't do this right now and really cut it off. And to me, I was like, okay, we're done. And I remember feeling like really upset, like disproportionately upset. Um, I think I got in my car and drove. I just didn't know what to do. I was really pushed out of my body from that experience um, and just in a state of panic. And then I remember, you know, a couple hours later, maybe it was a little longer, but, you know, he texted me and, and, and acted like nothing had transpired. Like, and I really thought like I'd never talk to this guy again. Um, it seemed not that final. So yeah, I, th- I think that was probably like within the first few weeks, to be honest, that this happened. Um, that kind of behavior, that destabilizing behavior of the pushing and the pulling would happen quite a bit. Quite a bit. It was definitely a big theme in the relationship. Even every night that we saw each other. I mean, I think for two years we saw each other five nights a week. And every night was a push and pull. So like... I would know that I, I was to be ready by seven o'clock um, because that's when this would all start. The texting and the phone calls and the texting and the phone calls. And I usually wouldn't end up getting there until like 10 o'clock at night because of all of this push and pull. And it was the strangest, like most frustrating times of my life because I, I didn't I really didn't understand what was going on, why I couldn't just come over, you know, um, how he would do that is is he would start attacking me for not texting and attacking me for dropping the conversation and um blaming me for stalling you know and and it would be him though i mean he would call me and play guitar for 40 minutes just like and i would just sit on the line and i, I never understood you know the the stalling and then the blaming it on me and it, but it was very destabilizing um the, those nights were hell. I, I hated them. I hated them. And again, I had to pretend that uh, I had to always keep the same face, um, which was very challenging. For sure. So there was a lot of destabilization um, that he used, including, you know, almost like scare jump stuff. Like he would suddenly stomp on the ground or he'd be in the bathroom and it would sound like he was like pounding the wall. Like it just a lot of sort of intimidation things. He liked to tell stories about his past that were pretty weird, scary stories. And this body, his body language would change and he would become, um, you know, bigger and he would be more intimidating and he would make like a lot of um, sort of strange eye contact, you know, um, and he actually used eye contact a lot to sort of scare me um, because, you know, he didn't use a lot of eye contact normally but when he did it was so targeted and um yeah i i got i went down a road and got lost that's okay you know what you mentioned already in there obviously you discussed intimidation and you know you know the thing with the guitar and keeping on the phone you know, here he's monopolizing your time and isolating you from, you know, contacting other people or having time for yourself. And he uses, you know, the monopolizing of your time a lot in your relationship. And 
that is also like a form of isolation that people don't really recognize that, you know, if they're occupying your time, even if you're not in your presence and you are away from them, you know, they're, they're denying you the ability to go and have a life somewhere else. And it's a form of control right there. So, you know, talking about the hijacking of, of your time, can you kind of elaborate on, you know, that aspect of your relationship? Yeah, it really did feel like a hijacking. Um, and especially, you know, at the time COVID was going on too. So it was easier to isolate me. And he really, I, I just had no time to myself. Um, he had children and on nights he had his kids even he would have me come over at an odd time, like between 10 or 11 at night to get dinner that he packaged up for me. Um, so that kind of kept me from engaging in any kind of activities at night because I knew that this would always happen. Um, so I stopped hanging around my friends because my mood would plummet so badly when this was going on. It would cause me such anxiety that, you know, my friends were like, disturbed by my behavior and I didn't want to be witnessed in that anymore. So it became quite isolating. And then when COVID happened, it became worse because he became really paranoid about COVID, supposedly. Um yeah, it, it really was all about him. And um my life was all about him. And um, you know, I learned that there was no point in saying no because you know, on those nights where I didn't want to go out into the dark rain, sleeping already to get dinner that I didn't want to eat. Yeah, saying no, I just didn't want to go and get this dinner. And he badgered and badgered for another couple hours. And and then he he just came to my home at like midnight with a bowl of chili. And, I, I, you know, those were one, that was one of those sinking times for me that I was like, I, I'm just I'm never going to be able to get rid of this person and I think that was like a theme for me at some point where it shifted and I really started to understand that he was not going to leave and and that had been his fear tactic at, for me the whole time was was threatening and, and putting that out there that you know something horrible was about to happen and keeping me on edge and and yeah when that shift started happening it was the horror of realizing that this was my life and and um i would have to be the one to to make this stop um so during covid i definitely exploited that time and tried to take a break from him and ended up nine days not seeing him and i thought it was really trying to give myself that time away from him to to get strength and um, yeah, he ended up badgering me and badgering me. And, you know, eventually, of course, we were hanging out again during COVID. And at that time, I, I had some plumbing issues in my house that were um, not allowing me to use my shower and my toilet was bubbling up. And and in order to fix this problem, like my whole basement had to be torn out, which plumbers weren't going to do. And so I had somebody come by to have a look at that. And when I told this guy, about this he exploded at me so you know this would be another isolation thing and, and just like how dare i have somebody there during covid how dare i you know take care of this problem and you know i did everything wrong and why wouldn't i have you know 
um, come to him for this. And, you know, by this time I knew this guy was not reliable at all. He would never do anything for me. So, of course, I wasn't going to think of him. Um, it was also my home. Really had no um, authority over me. And yet, you know, by the end of the three-hour-long conversation of him screaming at me about this, you know, where it went into such weird places where he was accusing me of leading this man on, that and saying this man was in love with me and I was beating that. It, like, it was so crazy. I just couldn't, you just want it to stop. I just wanted it to stop always. Like, I just wanted it to stop and I couldn't find a way to make it stop because it didn't matter how, how much I tried to soothe that person. He was unsoothable. He would, he would stop when he was ready to stop. Um, and it didn't matter if I didn't speak, because when I spoke, he attacked it. And, you know, I wasn't hearing him. I wasn't understanding him. Why does he even bother? Um, you know, I never listened to him. I don't care about his feelings. It's all about me. I mean, a lot of this stuff was super hard to listen to. And I had to swallow it all and just keep trying to find a way to make it stop. Because it was very uncomfortable. Um, I felt under attack. In, in every possible way and trapped and um yeah when he was done one of those episodes and he certainly had a few during our time together um he would pause for a moment and then he would tell me to get on over he had a steak cooking for me and those were probably the worst times it was having been yelled at and screamed at about such irrational craziness and then having to like get my shit together and go over to his house and cook a meal and smile and stroke his ego and um, make him feel okay. And that was my life. I remember thinking of myself as the night nurse at that time, because I, I felt that I was there to soothe him, look after him, um, make sure he was comfortable. And, you know, big triggers for him, for me would have been, you know, he didn't want me to be comfortable. So if I looked comfortable, you know, he would spring on the attack. So I always had to be just in this even keel place. Um, he, he didn't like any deviation from that. And even if there wasn't any there, he would create it. He would create it. I remember going to his house one night and realizing I had forgotten an ingredient for the meal. And like, for me, that was just like, oh, God, like I was so on it. <laughs> and used to being on it in my life that, you know, like forgetting the meat for the meal it was like I was kicking myself for it already. And then realizing that there was going to be hell to pay. And and so, yeah, I mean, he just popped up when he discovered that I didn't bring this ingredient and, and it just went off for two hours about how 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 I could possibly do this horrible thing. <laughs> And, and, you know, no, again, being rational, I'm like, you know, I can be home and back here in less than 10 minutes. We'll have the meat, right? And um, it, it didn't work. And I just, I couldn't understand it. And, you know, I remember that night trying to leave and he blocked the doorway and, you know, was definitely using a lot of intimidation tactics. He was a very tall, big guy posing and he knew how to hold his body in a way that he meant business. Um, and so I remember just sitting on his sofa and 
I just looked at him and I said, you know, I, I need a few moments to regulate my nervous system. And he looked at me with such venom and, and he said, you know, who the fuck is going to regulate my nervous system? Like, so yeah, it was just these explosions going on. Never knew when they were going to happen. Um, always over something that seemed to me to be so fixable, so ridiculous. Um, it was a lot to process and uh, easily forgotten in that kind of trauma haze sort of thing. And the words that were said right there where you said, uh, uh, give me one moment, I need to regulate my nervous system. And his response was, who's going to regulate mine? So right here, he's really saying, you know, flat out, he's saying, you need to fix this. And in reality here, this is an issue only he can fix, but he's putting it on you. He's putting his emotions on you to fix or to fix, you know, for you to fix the the relationship. That's what he's also saying here. He's also saying, you know, fix his happiness or you're the one who's causing his, his anger. It's on you with this person that you're dealing with. And that's a big lie that he wants you to believe like many abusers, many abusers do this. And this is also a minimization of what you're going through as well, a denial and a lot of blaming here, it seems. Yeah, there was a lot of blaming. It was, it was always an underlying tone that it whatever was happening in his life was was my fault and uh that was also a heavy burden to carry around and especially someone like me who has triggers around feeling needy so it brought that up where i felt like i was being needy just by not actually yeah i mean not by somehow by not expressing any needs but it still felt like i was just responsible i guess is a better way to say it i felt i was responsible and um he would make that happen sometimes less nuanced, you know, sometimes really straightforward that it was my fault. Yeah. I remember, you know, we, in the beginning, we used to go out sometimes and going out was hell. Um, I hated it. Like I was happy to stay at his house because the experience of going out in public with this guy was just, it was a bag of tricks every time. It was never going to be the same. Yeah, he was going out and playing one night, and he had been acting really strange and trying to. He was he was flirting with other women, and it actually wasn't bothering me. Um, but he wanted it to bother me, and because it wasn't bothering me, he he tried to start something, and it was just it was so uncomfortable. I, I didn't, didn't know how to defend myself because I didn't feel that I needed to or wanted to defend myself. And yet I had to defend myself somehow because it was just, how do how does this stop? Like, and you know, he would say, well, now I can't play tonight because of you, you know, like I would be, and I would feel horrible because this is not what I want. I mean, I was the kind of person, like, honestly, what was motivating me for so long with him. I wanted him to be able to be himself. Like, that's all I cared about. I didn't care about, anything else it was just like hey i just really want you to feel like you can be yourself and be cool around me and i can support that so to be 
put in that role of somebody who was in trying to impair someone's confidence, like really crushed me. Like, you know, and in that is all this other manipulation going on about, you know, him wanting me to be jealous. So he would, I think on these nights we went out, he would try different, different ways to see what he could do, like take with him in his bag to, you know, torment me in the future, for example. So, you know, there was always, there was just always some kind of very unusual or un- really uncomfortable, horrible fights, you know, that he would create. Because for me, I was just having a, trying to have a good time. Everything was a hassle to go out. I remember the first time we tried to go swimming. We we had to take separate cars. He was a very secretive guy, too. Um, we had to take separate cars and go to probably like six different swimming spots before he felt comfortable at one. and. You know, at the time, what I did with that was understood that I had had lived with anxiety and I knew what it was like not to feel comfortable somewhere. So I was patient with that kind of stuff. But, you know, early on, I didn't really make the connection that these were tactics to destabilize and to, you know, like nothing was nothing could be straightforward and simple with him. It was like I always knew that there was going to be like something horrible was going to happen and and it did every time <laughs> whether we were out at a party or out at, a, at an event or out hiking there was just always a catastrophe and it was always very um unsettling and uh it was always about him <laughs> so you know you're dealing with being destabilized and we've discussed isolation, you know, we've discussed minimizing, denying, blame, intimidation, but like mind games in emotional abuse becomes a big thing. So uh, what happened with him and, and how does he employ this type of abuse uh, on you? I'd say the first time it happened was like, well, this is probably the most unusual thing that happened in, in the relationship. He had taken my computer to help out with a problem. Um, He was definitely one of those, you know, chief safety officer. I know everything I can do and fix. I'm the hero. He loved that role. And so early on, he was still trying to impress me with that. And so he was going to help me with my computer. And I remember thinking at the time, there's nothing on my computer that I really care that he sees. Like, I I felt like secure um, to hand over my computer. Only I didn't realize at the time that giving him my um, Apple password would give him access to my phone. So a couple months went by and I started recording his abuses on uh, in, in notes on my phone. So I would go into the washroom when I was at his place and it was kind of a way for me to stabilize, um, was just to see it written down. Um, and I remember there was one night where he was, he liked to make it seem like he was poisoning me. Like he thought that was kind of funny. So he would like pour two drinks when I wasn't there and then push one at me, like just, or then pull it back. And then, oh no, like just, you know, you could never call him on something like that because he would be like, I'm just joking. But it was again, another kind of destabilizing thing, kind of like, he would bring out his knives and start sharpening them and just sort of, you know, kind of wield one my way at times. Like these were the sort of things that you could, you couldn't pin somebody down on, but I felt 
them. So anyway, I had written that night in the note that, um, you know, I think he's trying to poison me and uh, I'm going to drink this tea or whatever. And, and, you know, hopefully I'll be okay. Anyway, um, a few days later, something he said triggered me. And suddenly I realized that I had given him the password to my phone and it all became clear to me. And I remember like I was in a panic and I went to the phone store and like ditched my old phone and like wiped everything and, and became extremely afraid of recording anything. Um, but what happened after like a couple of days after this was completely bizarre. So one night he calls me. And um, he wants me to come over. There, he has a friend there, he said, and he, he can't be alone. And this was very unusual. I'd never been over to his place when a friend was there. I'd never met a friend, really. I mean, I'd met acquaintances, but not a friend. And why he was calling me over to be there at this time was strange to me. It just all felt strange and weird. And so we're sitting in his living room. The friend, I guess, is going through a hard time. We go, he and I go into the kitchen. And he starts making a cheese board and he takes some cheese out to his friend and uh, says, you have to try this. It's so good. And he and I had had some cheese and then in the kitchen, we're like, yeah, it's great. It just seemed very normal until a couple minutes later, this guy comes into the kitchen and like very dramatically spits the cheese into the trash can and says, you're trying to poison me. And so this is happening. And he's he's telling this guy, you know, you're trying to poison me. I know what you're doing. You're trying to poison me. And I'm just like, again, can't even believe what's happening. When I got there, he made sure we smoked the biggest, fattest joint with oil. And so I was extremely high. I had no idea what was going on. He started to get aggressive toward this friend. Like, why would you say that? Like, there was this whole scene unfolding. And then in front of me and and i remember the the friend this guy that was accusing him of poisoning him i remember him saying the word narcissist too and i just had this pit fall in my stomach because you know i feel kind of crazy saying this but i, I believe that he read my notes on my phone about his abuse and was creating i, I don't know how that would happen right so this was very destabilizing <laughs> like um and it felt so surreal and strange. And I, I just couldn't deny that it seemed very staged. It just was way beyond coincidence that this was happening. You know, that definitely stuck with me. Um, you know, with this thrown on top of everything going on, the destabilization of all of the footing that is beneath you. You know, when you wake up every single day with all of these things going on, you know, what do you, what are you thinking? Like, are you able to get up or are you as every day, like I assume if someone is going to war that you're waking up with this mentality of like, I better, I got to put on my art, like my, my helmet today. I got to take my gun with me. I got to get ready for this. Like, are you on edge from the moment you wake up? And that's assuming that you sleep. So, you know, as far as that feeling goes, when you're not around him, 
Like, what is your day to day like in this destabilization? That's such a good question. Um, you know, I remember later in the relationship, I would pretty much wake up every morning crying already. It wasn't even, a, there was no thought. It was just water leaking from my eyes constantly. Um, earlier on in the relationship, it was like putting on an armor. I knew what I needed to do in the day. And no, I definitely didn't sleep much. Um, he wanted me at his house, you know, usually till about five in the morning. And um, so then I would get up and I'd be, you know, the process of going home, of course, I would wake up, I'd be up for a bit. I might have slept in this period, and this was three and a half years, I might have slept three hours a night. And I was always up, always high energy until I didn't have it anymore. But in this period, you know, I would get up and um, I would probably... I mean, I was drinking so much, but I wasn't feeling hungover. And so I would get up and I would immediately hike. That was my like saving grace in the beginning. I would spend three to four hours hiking. Um, he, he had a job um, in the beginning. He was still building it. So he would maybe text me during that, and which was so jarring. I didn't want it when I was out in the woods, um, but I dealt with it anyway. Um, and later on, I you know, and near the end, I knew I had a period between 12 and five where he wouldn't text me, it, you know, very unlikely he would text me. And by that time, between 12 and five, I would lie in my bed and I couldn't handle any stimulation. I couldn't stand my phone. My phone like terrified me. I didn't want it around until, and even still, it's been a year and a half. I can't have the ringer on my phone. I just, it's triggering. So I would just lie in bed for five hours and feel resentful if a friend texted me and wanted to get together because it was like those were my five hours of like like i said no stimulation dark quiet nothing <laughs> um because yeah i'd have to keep refortifying myself over and over and over and over um until eventually it became more and more impossible to do and I, I really, by the time I was out of that relationship, was so depleted in energy. I didn't hike anymore. Um, I couldn't. Uh, I could barely walk around a grocery store without feeling like I was going to just not have the energy to to do it. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty crushing. But definitely in the beginning, like I had those strides. The hiking really saved me a lot. And uh, yeah, it took a huge toll on me, you know, on my mind. I couldn't think anymore, um, you know, on my body. My body was in bad shape. You know, I wasn't eating, sleeping, um, and my soul. I mean, my soul was probably, took it the hardest, really. There was really not a lot left. And eventually... And there's a trigger warning here for everybody. There's a content warning right here. So if you need to turn off uh, the show for a little bit of time, we're about to talk about uh, abusive animals. So um, oh, did, did you see the, the look on your face when I said that? Are you okay? Yeah. Do you want to talk about this or no? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um. We can take a little bit of a break. No, let's just do it. Okay. I think I'll be all right. Okay. So 
this part for you became very startling and it's scary. So I guess walk us through what happened. So he had a dog. They were quite, you know, codependent, I guess. Um, <laughs> it was a big dog. He's very much under this person's control. Um, he liked to startle the dog. I remember he warned me early on that anyone who said anything about how he treated his dog was going to go out the door. There was like definitely a feeling of, of it, was, it was it was a threat. And I took it that way. And um, I'm not going to make myself feel any better by saying, you know, because I felt threatened, I didn't say anything um, because it was more than that. Um, you know, I, I probably started to really identify with the dog after a while. I could see what its life was being controlled, being yelled at, um, you know, under the guise of looking after his dog, he would violently pull at his hair and. Yeah, I really knew who he was. I saw who he was very clearly one day, and I, I really saw the predicament that I was in. Um, he, was, he had made a, a promise to his child to start being kinder to the dog, um, because I don't really think he tried to hide the abuse. Um, he'd be in another room, and I'd hear the dog yelp, and I, I, I'd know that he kicked him. So, yeah, he had made a promise to his kid that he was going to try harder and try love trying being kind and when he told me this there was such revulsion in his face i just didn't really see it was going to be a successful way to to do it but anyway so i was there with him one day and he called the dog over to him sweetly gave him a little kiss on the snout and then he punched him in the face and um you know 10 second act right there and uh saw that that's what he did to me and and tons of other people. He has children. He has people in his life and he treats us all like this. And that dog took the brunt of it. And, uh, you know, I think about that dog still. So obviously we've been talking about emotional abuse here and intimidation a lot and your understanding who he is when it came to animal abuse. Um, you know, a lot of things abusers do as far as, you know, emotional abuse goes is to, you know, ruin holidays for people, ruin big days for people, um, you know, because things always have to be about them and they can, they don't want you to have a, a day for yourself. So for you, you experience this as, as well. So, you know, tell us what happened here. Yeah, I really, really disliked holidays um and it's funny because i wasn't even celebrating holidays so it was my birthday and i knew from previous birthdays you know it was going to be nightmarish and i kind of vowed to myself early on like before it was coming weeks before i was like this is the last birthday you're going to spend with this person this is the last one and it was so um i didn't want to celebrate my birthday i didn't say anything about it but he always remembered and would push at me this year in particular was pushing at me, you know, let's do something. What do you want to do? And you know, I was like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to celebrate my birthday. I said, you know, we'll, we'll hang out like we always do kind of thing. Um, and he wouldn't let it go. And so we had agreed to meet at his place right away. 
he delayed the time that we were going to get together and it became kind of the, the weird thing again where i was supposed to be there at seven and you know let's say i got there at nine and i remember i came in and right away the energy remember this is him wanting to celebrate my birthday not me but him but the energy was the coldest and i can't even believe it because it had been so cold at times before it was so cold he did not even look at me he was at his in his kitchen cooking and with such like disdain for me it was like no words that even transpired at this point it was he was so angry and he was making like just the most basic meal you know pulling some stuff out of the freezer and cutting up some carrots and 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 he just did everything he possibly could to shut me into this cold 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 place where it was just very chilly and um we didn't even speak we sat and we ate and he stared at the television and you know it was clear that this was nothing special going on but yeah the coldness is what i couldn't handle very well and you know i really i really you know took pride in my ability to not show reaction and that's just something from childhood that i've lived with um and so it was an extreme with him and i never wanted to show my reactions but that was a night i couldn't hold it back and we were sitting there eating and I, I was became so uncomfortable. My body just literally got up and I put my shoes on and I went out the door. I didn't say a word. Um, and then I don't know what happened, but he he somehow he got me back in again. And all I could do in that time, I actually asked him, we weren't much for hugging. I said, can you hug me? That was that was a super uncomfortable experience and very enlightening um, to how far I was, you know, in this that you know, to just be witnessing right there, you know, that needing of comfort from the same person who's abusing me. It was pretty, pretty stark. And that was the last birthday, though. <laughs> that was great. And, you know, you wrote me, I fought as hard to stay in this relationship as I fought to get out. I was literally splitting in two. And... I think for you, you I and mean, for everyone, eventually there is a breaking point or a rock bottom where you have to choose yourself over what's happening. So now eventually you get to a place where you know you need to to leave in the rock bottom of everything. So walk us through what happens here. Yeah, I think there were a few things that happened to take me to that rock bottom. And one was sort of an increasing acceptance of what was really happening. I think for a long time, you know, my mind find ways, found ways to, you know, skirt around it or minimize it or justify it. I would just find many different ways and I would spend a lot of time in my head with it. And I was starting to be more in my body with it because I couldn't ignore some of these symptoms that were occurring in my body. I couldn't ignore the depletion. And so there was an acceptance that needed to happen for me. Um, first of all, the acceptance that I was powerless to this addiction that I had to him. I was powerless to it. And, and that was a pretty raw moment of discovery. So I immediately 
got a therapist at that point. Um, that was probably, I was probably still about a year out from going, from breaking it off, but it, it really started that process for me. Um, so the acceptance, um, there was a letting go of my naivety in that that needed to happen, um, not just with him, but in general, um, seeing things as they were, not as as what I wanted them. I started to get more serious. I started to do EMDR, and in the way I did it, um, we were working specifically on getting me out of his bedroom at night. So it was a very specific problem because that was where a lot of my turmoil and, and how distraught I would be because I'd be lying in his bed and I'd want to leave, but I was too scared to leave for whatever reason. I was too scared because he'd get mad. I was too, you know, there were so many different things, um, but it caused me an extreme amount of pain. And so we worked specifically on that. And I think it really shifted me in the grand scheme of things to start getting that process of getting out of the relationship going. And so I remember the first time I broke up with him, um, I, I wrote him an email and I didn't um, block him or anything like that. I just wrote him an email and I, I, I guess I thought that was going to be enough. And of course it wasn't. Um, he badgered me and bullied me until I was right back in there again. And um, it was like it never happened all within an hour. I mean, it, it happened that quickly and I was back at it again. Um, I would say his abuse started getting more intense at this point because I, I feel he knew that I was obviously knew I was trying to get out of it. Um, so he would switch up his tactics a little bit and. You know, eventually I managed to, I would say this is another integral piece of it. I managed to get my emotional thinking under control. Um, and that helped considerably. So there was no more ruminating going on. I was not trying to find a way to keep in, you know, I was not emotionally affected. And I, I guess I started essentially, you know, really gray rocking him. Um, and that really made him angry. And, you know, then he was actually starting to reveal a little bit more about himself. And, you know, at the time I was surprised because he actually said, you know, you can't. He knew the terminology of narcissism and I was very surprised. He was like, you know, you can't gray rock me. And I, I was shocked to hear that. So, you know, we're definitely both of us are revealing a bit more of our game at this time. And um you know, he was going back and forth between doing really unusual behavior, like really kind behavior, and then yelling at me because I didn't appreciate it enough. And so it was really tumultuous. He was really trying some new things, was really trying his best to destabilize me. Um, so I went on a whim one night. I blocked him. I remember negotiating it with myself. Um, it was during a time where he started, um, he started disappearing, which was very unusual for him. And it was causing me so much anxiety um, that I, it was just an appropriate time to block him. I couldn't handle the anxiety I was feeling waiting to get that text anymore. So I think I, I made about four days and um, unblocked him, started talking to him again. You know, I was trying some different ways to, to get out of there. And um, I would say, you know, that another part that was pretty instrumental was contacting that HG tutor guy and 
um, having a consultation with him because for whatever reason, it kind of clicked that had none of this had anything to do with me anymore. I had my own issues for sure. Um, but nothing about him had anything to do with me and that I could ask a million different questions about why is he doing this or why is this happening or what is this about? And none of it mattered. It all boiled down to control. And for whatever reason, talking with the tutor, I really, it just hit home in a way that I, I got it. It's like, there's no point anymore. It, it's all about control. It has nothing to do with me and it's, it's time to get out of here. And I, and I guess really, you know, realizing that he was never going to leave me that, you know, as long as I couldn't get out of this, he was going to keep in it as long as he could. I mean, he, he got to fuck with me psychologically, which kind of amused him. You know, he got a lot of residual benefits from hanging out with me. Um, he was, he was getting, getting a lot of things from me and, uh, he wasn't going to give that up even if he, yeah. I mean, I, I just saw, I, I really got to see it, what was going on. So, um, and I would say like the, the final piece in that was, um, again, one night him blindsiding me on the phone, um, he yelled at me for probably again, usually about three hours. That was his thing. And, um, can't even remember what he was accusing me about now. It was whatever he was doing, you know, a lot of projection. Um, just yelling and yelling and yelling and I'd speak and he don't speak, you know, and then I would not speak. Why don't you, you know, it was just this circular thing. And it was so hard on my body that when I hung up the phone or he hung up on me, like I projectile vomited. And so when I felt that in my body and like, I remember I shook for the next hour, that was enough for me. Um, I knew I had to do it. I knew that in order to do it, I couldn't no longer, I couldn't see him anymore. And I had to kind of wait for the right time. So like, I still remember it was like a Tuesday night and, uh, I knew that I could break away on that weekend. So, cause I literally, I wanted to leave my home. I wanted to leave my town. I live in a small town. I wanted to be completely away from it. And so I booked like an Airbnb for that Saturday and then I just had to to just try and make it through till then not to see him or talk to him on the phone because I knew he'd bully me back and I couldn't do it so um fortunately it worked out he had relatives visiting so he was actually not around so much and um the Saturday came and I got on a ferry and I sent him a text because I learned from the first time I went no contact that he will use concern about me as a way to um re-engage me. So in the text I said, you know, very simply, we're done. This is this is done. And I blocked him and I went away and um yeah, started started recovering. And and recovering for me in the first few months was honestly sleeping. Um, I'd never like slept so much in my life. Um, had no energy and, uh, I could sleep all night and then sleep half the day away. And so, you know, I just tried to, uh, I just tried to listen to my body that way because it was, it was needing rest for sure. 
So eventually you're here in your healing process and I want you to talk about your healing process and everything that you've done, but also how the abuser coming back for a very brief moment helped in your healing process as far as validation goes. So you can, can you talk about both of those things? So he did try to contact me a couple of times, um, once six months or so after he and I, or after I split. Um, and it was, it was actually a good thing to get, you know, after the initial, uh, like it was an email I, I couldn't block him on. And, um, uh, it was just, it kind of was like the piece almost that I needed to, to see his desperation, you know, in trying to get his property back. Um, it made me feel like while I had my own, you know, issues and things that were driving me independently in this relationship, um, I was being coerced and manipulated and controlled. And, you know, I wasn't maybe trying to stay in it as hard as I thought I was, that I was being really toyed with there. And it was great to have that, him reaching out and in such a, you know, kind of desperate way and, and to feel no desire to um, respond, you know, and I mean, people often ask how long it's going to take. And, you know, that was, that was only six months and I didn't feel it necessary to respond. So it does, get a lot easier um because for sure i mean i wouldn't have imagined feeling that six months earlier it was like the hardest thing i ever did in my life was was leaving him um so yeah and i know that firsthand because me and many others were witness to your struggle struggle and the you know we were watching your wins and proud of you on, you know, days where you were like really, you know, standing up for yourself and strong in those things. And we were also part of those days where, you know, those things didn't happen and, you know, the falling back and being, being in those cycles and, and watching a cycle start again and watching you go through those cycles and the different aspects that were going through. And it was a, a big, big struggle. And, you know, you knowing that you needed to get out, but just how difficult it is. It's hard to explain to people that have never experienced it before how difficult that struggle is. Um and I don't know if those people can ever understand, but you know, watching you and the mechanizations that are going through you and how you're ping-ponging off of a lot of things where you know, some days you're getting that strength and you're doing and you're going, you're going and you're strong. And then you know, the one thing can happen, ping-pong, boom, you're back in a cycle and you know, watching that for, for so long. Um, and, you know watching you grow through that. And I know that sometimes you didn't feel like you were growing or maneuvering, but we could see, you know, it's five steps forwards, four steps back, five steps forward, three steps back, five steps forward, six steps back, you know, but five, but you kept pushing. And, um, 
it's a process that everyone has to go through until you get to the end. And then that becomes its own thing. And, you know, you hear telling everyone, you know, six months and things started to lessen, you know, it, there's a lot that went into those six months uh, previous and a lot of work went on in those six months before that six months happened too. Um, but I have no idea where I was going with that. <laughs> I just started going. Well, I would say, you know, definitely during that time, um, I had such a good support network all my close friends at the time supported me with patience through that. And I don't think it was probably very easy to watch that happening. Um, and yet in all that time, no one with the amount I needed to talk about it and, you know, seeing myself in that cycle and, and, you know, all the hum humiliation that comes with that and the disappointment and the, you know, lack of compassion for this, you know, essentially child that was struggling, you know, to break free from, you know, a whole history of, of abuse. You know, it was all kind of on that pinpoint of this relationship. So, you know, having these friends who stuck by me and never doubted me, never intervened, which I would often become scared of happening, that somebody would intervene. Um, and then to have the support group, you know, which was immediately a container of people who understood whether they could understand my individual, you know, reactions or not. It didn't matter. Everybody understood. It was a safe, very safe container. Um, super important to my healing and to me getting to a place to heal um, were these, these connections that I made and this chance to be seen in um such a conflicted and um vulnerable place so yeah like a, a lot went into it and you know i'm privileged enough to have the time to take care of myself during this time that i know like i i don't have children i don't have anything pressing on me and so for me um once i left this relationship i pretty much morphed right into um, healing myself. And so, you know, I no longer needed to see anything about narcissism. It just finally, I could put that energy on myself because, you know, in some ways this relationship was, was an avoidance of myself, obviously, you know, like everything that was in me was being shown to me in the extreme, you know? So I got to meet my addict. I got to meet my people pleaser, my caretaker. Um, you know, I got to engage in a in a trauma response that I hadn't, which was the fawning. Um, um, I was more of a, 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 you know, freeze flight kind of person. You know, like I spent like my childhood hiding in closets. You know, if, if I could hide, I would do it. And this was something I could no longer hide from. Um, and so it really pushed me into an interesting journey of self-discovery really i had to see all these parts that i'd outcast um and start to to bring them in and so um that's what i've been doing for the last year and a half really you know almost kind of full time um 
I'm working with a, a Jungian analyst to uncover more of my unconscious. Um, so doing dream analysis and um, there's a lot less importance on thinking now for me. I mean, I love, I love thinking. I love to analyze and it's fun. I love those kind of conversations, but a whole other world for me has opened up um, with intuition and, you know, with exploring my unconsciousness and I'm able to um, look after myself. You know, I noticed it slowly started happening. Um, you know, it, just the little things. I, I started realizing that, you know, I could brush my hair and like I brushed my hair. It was sort of soothing to do that. And it just sort of provided a bit of a, a structure of acknowledging my body and my person. And um, I started eating like for nourishment and, you know, it started to become really important to heal the whole of me and not just you know, disordered thinking or, you know, there's just been a lot of um, big moments of, of becoming more in touch with my body. And I really feel, you know, that the biggest outcast, you know, the biggest thing that I outcast about myself going through the childhood that I did was my body. And I feel like um, going through this experience was like a way to see just how how honed my survival skills were and and how I didn't need them in that way anymore so it's been a really cool process often very humbling I'm still even at a year and a half out I don't have the energy that I had previous to this experience um I'm very conservative about looking after myself and my time and I still need a lot of time in that unstimulated sort of environment. I've withdrawn more. And when I say withdraw, I don't mean I shouldn't withdraw some sort of, I've just, I enjoy being alone. And that's the biggest difference of having spent like the last five years so engaged in people and, and engaged in that relationship and everything about everyone else. Um, just to have this time of solitude and and to have to defend it even at times because people don't understand always um, why this has happened and why I've gone this way. But solitude has been super important in my healing. Um, it's the only way for my nervous system to settle enough to allow me to pursue the creative endeavors that I that are important to me. So um, I see my life going in a really different way now, and you know in part because I had this awful experience. It, it was, um, it, it really revealed a lot of myself to me. And so I'm grateful I went that way with it. You know, as far as relationships, I've withdrawn from any notion of having a relationship. Um, I, I'm just, and, and I know my limitations. I know that if I go out and I have two, two shots of tequila, I'm going to be a different person and I'm going to be, people pleasing and I'm going to turn into that. So I just don't put myself in a position where um, I have to uh, engage in that aspect right now. Um, I want to stay clear of relationships and, and men right now, because um, it's been such a, the only thing in my life for the last 40 years. So um, 
yeah. So if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be? I think the biggest thing would be like to tell people who you know can support you in this, who can, you know, listen to you and hold that space that you need to be however you are in this without influencing you or, you know, making you feel like you need advice or any of that. Just people who will listen and and hold that space for you, I think, is huge. And, you know, it's a hard thing to talk about. Um, And, you know, when you're talking to the wrong person, you know it. I, I feel it when I'm talking to the wrong person. So, um yeah take your story and your and your emotions and 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 trust them with people who you feel okay around um it, i think it's really necessary to to be able to speak <laughs> during this time if I, if I didn't have that outlet i i just can't imagine what i would have done um you know and and learn how to like be an observer in your life like observe your reactions and your gut feelings and your relationships and your patterns and behaviors and even the darker ones and kind of examine what shaped you because, you know, the ways you've survived, um, the ways you've survived are are actually helping you through this. And, um, it's good to listen to, to, to those darker parts that, that maybe don't get a voice as much. Um, yeah. I mean, be curious about yourself. (laughs) Um, which is a, is a hard one during that, but um, if you can, it, it does help. It does, it does create separation and strength. So, you know, you started. We started this process kind of around the holiday season last year, I think, where we got on the phone, and I pretty much like barfed a lot of information to you as far as like try and do this and you know, this, that, or the other. And I'm sure it was overwhelming everything that I was throwing out there. And that was it for a while. And then one day out of nowhere, I hadn't seen you in a very, 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 very long time. And then out of nowhere, I got an email from you saying, I'm ready. I didn't expect that because I hadn't seen you in a very, very long time. I didn't know what was going on. And you kind of had everything written down there. And then we got on the phone and and we chit-chatted and we organized. And then you came here today and you told your story here today. And I know this was going to be kind of the end for you, the end of the line for you as far as, you know, putting all of this to rest and doing work on yourself and and focusing on yourself. And I'm so happy for you that you have gotten to this place. And I know how much work that you have done over the last couple of years to, to get to this place and I saw you on your best days and your and your worst days and you really put in a lot of difficult work 
and you didn't go around anything, you know, you, you went through, you've, you've come, you, you've done so much work and such difficult work, you know, to get here and seeing everything from the beginning. I'm just, I'm, re- I'm really proud of you. I really am. So, yeah. Huh. Oh. I didn't know you couldn't get teary eyes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, everyone, um, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. And this was um, a commitment I made to myself to do this. And I'm glad I saw it through. And I'm ready to release the story of this and keep the teachings. And uh, yeah, this this podcast, listening to this podcast kept me going in so many ways. And I'm, I'm so grateful to also be a part of it and, and hope it does help. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Well, thank you, Kate, for being here. And if you want to be a guest like Kate was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions. And either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. Also, at our website, we have a support group. So if you want to join our support group, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Support Group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. Inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. And it is a wonderful group of people on there. And you can share your experiences with everyone on there, make friends too. So if you need support, Join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in. Domesticshelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. And we have another friend of the show called Shelter Movers, and Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of coercive control transition to a better and safer life. It is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. It is currently only in Canada, but they're looking to expand into the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of coercive control, help you to safety, get all of your things out of your home, into storage, all of your belongings into storage. And they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please do go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode. So for myself and Kate, we hope you have a good night.